Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mom Light, the podcast where we try to help mothers find lightness of body, mind, and being. Before I get into today's amazing interview, I would like to remind you all, and thank you actually first for tuning in to listen, and then to remind you to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. We are brand spanking new to iTunes. So any kind of love is super appreciated and will bring more visibility to the podcast and more listeners and help the podcast help more people. So thank you so much for doing that. And without further ado, I want to introduce today's guest. Um, we are very, very lucky and fortunate to have today on the podcast the lovely Dr. Vivian Chen. So I've known Vivian through Instagram. That seems to be the story of my life these days. But, you know, um, it is a powerful platform to connect and build community. And as a result of that, um, I met Vivian a few years ago now. And honestly, I've just learned so much from her that when I decided to do Mom Light, I knew I had to bring her on the podcast so she could share all her amazing wisdom with you. So Vivian Chen, Dr. Chen, is a UK medical doctor who lives in California in the US. In the UK, she is board certified in internal medicine and family practice and practiced for 14 years before she moved to California. She then became interested in integrative medicine when she herself and her family had health issues that conventional allopathic medicine could not treat. And you bet we're going to talk about that today. She decided to get educated on using food as medicine and lifestyle as medicine and became certified as an integrative health practitioner. She now works with clients around the world to get at the root cause of health issues and provide lifestyle consults to help them reach their health goals. And like I said, I have learned so much from her and I know you are going to as well today. So um, today we're going to talk about um, Dr. Vivian's journey from conventional medicine to a more holistic approach, um, some of her own health struggles that have really informed her approach and her philosophy around health and wellness, her epic morning routine, hello, how she deals with mom guilt, and so much more. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Vivian Chen. Hi, Viv. Hi, everyone. Hi, Ken Chen. I'm so excited to be here with you, and thank you so much for inviting me to your very special podcast. Thank you for being here. We are so excited to dive in. Um, I know we could talk for hours because you're just such a wealth of information, so thoughtful, so wise. Thank so you. yeah, I cannot wait to dive and in. I have to say the same about <laughs> you, Kanjan. You are such an inspiration to me. And, you know, talk about high vibe. You always give me high vibes. And, you know, I learn so much from you and in, you inspire me every day. So I'm just so honored to be here with you. Thank you so much. That's so kind. Um, thank you, Viv. So the first thing I want to ask, the most important thing is, is it really that beautiful in the Bay Area or do you guys just make us, <laughs> make us feel bad? <laughs> yeah, well, the weather, I can't complain about the weather moving from the UK, which is uh, mostly rainy and gray to just sunny every day. And I'm very lucky that I actually live in the East Bay of um, San Francisco. So um, San Francisco can actually get a little bit um, cloudy sometimes, but in the East Bay, it's kind of desert weather. So it's sunny pretty much. Okay. Now I feel really bad, but <laughs> sorry, I'll send you some sunshine. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, speaking of your um, growing up in the UK, so you shared with me um, something really moving and kind of sad, but also I guess, you know, these things always come as our greatest gifts, as our greatest lessons when you were growing up in the UK, you actually, tell us a little bit about that. So you didn't actually, you moved to the UK when you were 13, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I actually grew up in Taiwan. Um, and then when I was 13, my dad got a job transfer to the UK. And, you know, the, in the in Taiwan, everyone kind of idolizes the West. And, you know, so when he got the opportunity, he was like, okay, everybody, let's just go <laughs> move over there. Um, and I didn't speak a word of English when I arrived in the UK. And it was just such a shock to the system. Um, and, you know, age 13, you're kind of teenage, the hormones are kicking in. And yeah, it was, it was um, I think it's a period of time of my life that it really 
motivated me to work really hard and really question what I want to do with my life because it was just a transition from, okay, I'm a child, I'm enjoying all of this to, oh my gosh, I'm in this brand new environment. I don't know, I can't even communicate with anybody apart from my own family because, you know, I didn't know anybody who could speak Mandarin, uh, which is my mother tongue. Um, so, yeah, so that was um, a very, uh, I would say, motivating, um, but quite also quite traumatic period of my life. Yeah, and you mentioned um, being bullied um, at when you did move. Um, that doesn't sound very nice. What was that like? So, yeah, so there was a lot of bullying at school. Um, so people were kind of like, oh, well, because I was actually a very good student. So when I transferred from Taiwan to UK, I brought my certificates and grades. And uh, But because I couldn't speak any English, I couldn't keep up with the work being taught in the classrooms. And so the friends, well, they're not really friends, but, you know, the people who I was in the classroom with, they were kind of like, oh, well, I thought you were a good student and you don't even know how to do this and you know lots of making fun of me and uh, when I did speak the rare sentence of English they were making fun of how I was speaking my accent so um, yeah that was that was not very nice at all and I'm I'm sure I'm probably still carrying bits of that into my life right now but you know that really shaped that really did shape my motivation into what I'm doing right now so I think even negative things in our lives can have positive impacts. So that's what I try to focus on. Yeah, that stuff just gets inside your being. It's really hard to kind of heal from it entirely. I've you yeah. know, had similar experiences. We all have, I guess, in some shape or form. But that's amazing that you can channel that kind of pain, if you will, into some sort of motivation to serve. And that's what you really do every day. So... That's amazing. Um, Thank you. And so then you continue, you became a doctor, basically, just like you do, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. I mean, to move to a new country and not speak the language that well, and then to kind of have to overcome these um, biases and then become a doctor. Well, congratulations. That is a huge feat. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I always knew, actually, from a very young age that I wanted to help people. And in a way, moving to a country where I couldn't speak English, I, you know, I was naturally good at math and the sciences. So that was just a natural progression for me, I think, that, you know, if I'm good at sciences, then maybe I should become a doctor. <laughs> you know, and that was, is a very direct way of serving, right? So, um, and that's what drove me. Right. And so how long did you practice uh, medicine for in the UK? I practiced for 14 years. Um, and, uh, I did both internal medicine, as you said, in the very kind bio that you just said, um, internal medicine. And then I did a a year in dermatology and then I transitioned to family practice. Right. And so tell us a little bit about that experience working in medicine in the UK, seeing patients or what was it like? Um, did you like it? Yeah. So, um, I don't know if your listeners would know this uh, if they don't live in the UK, but in the UK we have uh, have a DNHS, so the National Health System, where healthcare is free at the point of delivery. So if you're sick in the UK, you go to a doctor, you don't pay a single penny. Um, and you know, some people may have to pay for prescriptions if they have chronic illnesses, but I totally in- align with that model of healthcare because I don't, I feel like health is our birthright and money should never come into health. So we shouldn't, you know, rich people shouldn't have better access to healthcare and poor people shouldn't have, shouldn't be denied access to healthcare. Um, so I aligned with that very much and I love the NHS, but of course there, there's issues with every healthcare system, right? So, um, there's limited resources. Um, the budget is in huge deficit because of rising, um, costs from chronic illnesses that we're seeing everywhere, uh, in the developed countries. Um, so, uh, when I, 
graduated from medical school, I went into acute medicine. So um, you do these, I, I did a residency in internal medicine. Um, so I worked a lot in the ER dealing with, you know, acute conditions like heart attacks, strokes, um, chest infections. And that was extremely rewarding. I absolutely loved my time, you know, doing procedures and you can see people turn around and you feel so rewarded when, you know, you, you, I felt like my goal and my dream, my dreams were um, accomplished because I, I, I was able to really help people save their lives, literally save their lives. And it's such a blessing to be able to do that. But slowly as I transitioned into family practice and I dealt more and more with chronic conditions, I realized the limitation of conventional medicine that I very, you know, I loved so much. I enjoyed my medical training. It equipped me with great knowledge base in physiology, um, you know, the human body, how the human body works. Um, but it didn't equip me with knowledge to deal with chronic conditions very well, unfortunately. So what I was doing more and more is just prescribing, prescribing these Band-Aid medications for chronic conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure. Um, and every prescription I gave led to some side effects that may then require another medication. So for example, with my patients with diabetes, I may start them off with one drug, usually it's metformin. And uh, we're trained to always start with lifestyle, but in a 10-minute appointment, you cannot explore lifestyle. You just don't have time, even if you wanted to. So very often, uh, very often um, you know, they go see the nurse and then they're counseled, whatever that means, on diet. And usually it's still kind of very standard American or standard um, Western diet. Um, but they're just told to, you know, avoid sugar, sugary foods and things like that, and then just put on medication. And then um, they may develop high cholesterol, they may co develop high blood pressure, which are often associated with diabetes. And then so by the end of five or 10 years, they're on four or five medications to treat all these other complications. Um, and it, I just got very frustrated with that situation. Um, and every day I question myself whether I'm truly helping people or what, what is going on. Because I can't just be prescribing, prescribing. That's not my job. I'm here to heal people. And healing means, for me, it means getting them off medication, or get, restoring the human body back to that state of health because we're not deficient in medications. Nobody is. And nobody should need it long-term just to achieve health. So um, I, I had that niggling at me all the time. And then when I had my daughter, I think that's, that was the absolute kind of turnaround time for me. Everything just snapped um, because she, at the age of eight weeks, was hospitalized um, so she, just to give you a little bit of background, um, and I think you might know this already anyway, um, she, uh, I was breastfeeding her and then she just wasn't feeding very well. And then, uh, I took her to the doctors. She was like, you know, two to three weeks old. They told me she had reflux. She was put on different medications and it didn't work. None of it worked. Um, and then, um, I also took, uh, took her to osteopaths lots of different alternative uh, healthcare practitioners and nobody could figure out what was wrong with her. Um, so things culminated in her being admitted at eight weeks because she just stopped feeding. She was getting so dehydrated by not feeding that she had to be tube fed. Um, so that was like the moment where I had that epiphany of, I'm a doctor. I trained for six years. I devoted my whole uh, adult life to this mode of practice. And I cannot even figure out what is wrong with my own child. Um, there must be something that I'm missing. So then that was when I really took the leap into investigating what else 
I needed to know to add to my toolbox to really be um, a doctor. Wow. I mean, how nerve-wracking, stressful, and heartbreaking as a mom to see a child in that situation and then on top of that to feel like you're qualified yet so helpless. Absolutely. Uh, It's the perfect storm, but in a way it sounds like it was maybe what was needed for you to make a switch. Because how many doctors do you think feel like their hands are tied and feel frustrated Mm -hmm. with primary care and the Band-Aid approach that a lot of conventional medicine takes exactly but for them to actually leave after all that training and hard work and seek an alternative approach maybe take something like what you experienced with your daughter right yeah. um, to really yeah. sort of solidify that transition so yeah but still I can only imagine how hard that must have been um do you still feel like you carry that around with you almost like uh you know it's it's yeah like the stress and the the guilt yeah absolutely you know I started blogging when I moved to California because um I don't have I did I decided not to get relicensed in the in the states because I just that kind of conventional medical model doesn't align with me anymore um so I thought well I need to do something with my knowledge and skills so I started blogging and sharing um, but when I first wrote about her, uh, the experience and the symptoms of allergies, uh, oh, sorry, just uh, I don't think I gave your listeners <laughs> the diagnosis that so she was actually allergic to cow's milk. Um, and it wasn't very well understood back then. It was 10 years ago. I'll just add that um, Vivian's um, Instagram account, plateful.health, um, is really a treasure trove of information and knowledge and inspiration about a lot of these conditions that are poorly understood by conventional medicine. So it was like no one knew what was going on with her and you had to figure out that she had a cow's milk allergy, but it wasn't manifesting in the typical way, which is, exactly. you know, the hives and the the difficulty breathing. It was it, it had a different kind of manifestation. And you actually talked about that very recently on my Instagram stories, which was so informative for so many people. So it is Thank kind you. of amazing that you had to become your own detective. Um, yeah, yeah. And then so, you know, that makes you feel like, what else have, you, have they not taught me at medical school? Um, and really, that, that really drove me into, um, like you said, being an, a detective. And, but the, the advantage I had was that I have the medical training to really understand the literature you know, to read scientific reviews, understand it and know which one is reliable, which one I should just, you know, ignore. So that I felt very well equipped to do to kind of understand everything. So that was when um, I dived into the microbiome. First time I even heard of that word 10 years ago, it wasn't trendy. First time you heard of the microbiome. You didn't hear of the microbiome in medical school? <laughs> no, no. And then in fact... Hopefully that's changed. Even, oh my goodness. Well, oh, absolutely. I think it, things have really moved on and I'm so happy to see that. But even um, for, I think three years ago, when I went back to the UK and uh, hung out with my medical school friends, they were like, micro what? What, what is that? And I'm like, you don't know what the microbiome is and where, you know, so I, I'm not criticizing them at all. And in fact, I feel compassion for conventional doctors because they, I feel that they all went into medicine to do, to want to do good for society, right? So they have devoted their lives so much hard training. Um, and I think a lot of them deep down realize what I realized, but it's just so hard to walk away from that. It's kind of like being in a relationship that you know you shouldn't be in, but then it's just really hard to make that transition and come out. Um, There's a lot of pain involved, um, actually. Yeah, I was going to ask that question about your colleagues, and that's such a beautiful way to think about it. Um, You know, do you feel like there is a substantial 
percentage of conventionally trained doctors who are starting to incorporate more of this wisdom yeah. into their practice. For sure. I feel like it is the case because maybe that's just the bubble I'm in. But what do you think? As yeah, a- I think we are in a little bit of a bubble on Instagram because we tend to connect with like-minded people. So, you know, you're talking the same language and then you get out into to the w- real world, for example, at my children's school and nobody knows what you're talking about, you know, down to very basic things like, um, you know, don't use hand sanitizers, for example. So um, we are... Can you please tell the listeners about that? Because I keep telling my husband we should not be using the hand sanitizers, but he's like, why? It's going to help us not get sick. Okay, yeah, let's just digress (laughs) for a second and tell everybody why that's a bad idea. Right, so uh, a lot of, I mean, there's some natural and okay hand sanitizers that are made from natural ingredients like essential oils, and, you know, those are okay to use, but a lot of hand sanitizers are made from artificial ingredients. Like, uh, I think they recently banned triclosan, but... That was an active ingredient in almost, you know, 99% of uh, hand sanitizers sold in stores. And we know that that can have an effect on our microbiome. And also, um, it can act as endocrine disruptor in our body. So, you know, if you're putting that on your skin, it's being absorbed because our skin is a mode of drug delivery. So we put, you know, nicotine patches on our skin that gets into our blood system. And in fact, it's actually more potent than taking it by mouth because it goes straight to your liver. Um, Sorry, it goes straight to your bloodstream and bypass the liver. So, you know, the transdermal route of drug delivery is known because it uh, the things that get into your bloodstream through that route is not broken down the liver. So, in fact, it's even more potent. So, you definitely don't want to be putting chemicals onto your body that can be absorbed straight into your bloodstream. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, So you obviously encountered this health challenge that your daughter faced, and that really shaped your decision to move away from conventional medicine. But you yourself experienced some health challenges, right? And um, was that while you were practicing medicine in the UK? Yeah, while I was in the UK. um, And and some of of those um, difficulties that you experienced. Yeah, so... um, that was another part to the equation of why I kind of delved into alternative or I hate the word alternative. I'm more integrative approaches to medicine. So I had severe brain fog to the point that I wouldn't even be able to recognize or not. I can recognize, but I just couldn't remember my friend's names if I saw them out in, in you know, in the grocery store. Um, um, severe fatigue. So if I, um, was driving home from work, sometimes I'd have to pull over on the side of the road to have a five minute nap just so I don't crash. Um, and anxiety, insomnia, GI symptoms. Anyway, it wasn't, oh, and also constant migraines. Uh, so a lot of symptoms which I actually just lived with, and actually a lot of people just, just live with those symptoms because they, they accept it as part of aging or they're being told by the doctor, oh, it's, it's, you're just aging, you know, for example, weight gain. Oh, it's just normal part of weight, aging. Um, so they, I went to my doctors a few times and they ran tests. Everything came back ne- negative. Um, they also referred me to a neurologist um, because of the fatigue and the migraines and everything was normal. So they told me that I was just a stressed out mom trying to manage a job, a a stressful job, busy job with mom life. Um, But at one, you know, when I had to pull over one day I was going home and I had to pull over just to have a nap again (laughs) to not crash my car. And when I woke up, I was just like, this is just not life. I'm, I'm not living. I'm not thriving. I'm just managing um, and I listened to my body first time, actually, just listening to my the symptoms and saying, my body's trying to tell me something. I mean, these symptoms are just, it cannot not be normal part of life. Um, and then that's when I said, okay, there must be something else. So I dug and I dug and I got dug. So I worked over this, these issues for a long time. And I realized eventually that I had a gluten sensitivity 
plus I was mercury toxic from the amalgams in my mouth. And plus I was eating a lot of high mercury fish like tuna at the time. Um, so I had to, I, I mean, obviously my doctors didn't believe me and they just thought I was crazy. And they're like, no, mercury, they offered to do mercury testing of my blood. And, you know, we know that mercury doesn't, it shouldn't stay in your bloodstream. So the fact that a doctor would offer you a blood test for mercury, unless you're, you know, in acute poisoning situation is insane because mercury goes to your tissues, goes to your brain, it goes to your thyroid, it goes to your joint, soft tissues. It's, it's very difficult to pick up. So I knew then that they weren't going to be able to help me on my health journey and I had to take everything into my own hands. Um, and I think that helped me move even more into the integrative world and realize that there's so many other healing modalities out there, but everything needs to start right at the basics, which is your lifestyle. Wow, that is some impressive detective work to go from, you know, what sound like symptoms that pretty much all my friends who are moms complain about in some, at some different, you know, at a different level. So everyone complains of brain fog and we think that's completely normal mom brain, hashtag mom brain. <laughs> yeah. um, tiredness, you know, yes, some tiredness mm -hmm. is normal. So mm -hmm. it's quite amazing that you went, I mean, obviously your symptoms were, I think, more extreme. And maybe again, yeah. that was a blessing in disguise because it really yes. forced you to pay attention. Mm -hmm. The message was loud and clear. But for the rest of us who experience a lot of those symptoms, maybe just not to the same debilitating degree, mm. should we accept that as part of hashtag mom life or should we find mom light I don't know yes well that's why I love your podcast because you know this is a platform for us to all share our experiences right and you know I hope that somebody listening to this may find inspiration and I I think that it depends on the individual right so if you've had no sleep because your toddler was up all night of course you're going to be tired the next day and you can explain that but and if you are sleeping seven to eight hours every day and you're eating healthily, but you wake up every day tired, no, I don't think that should be accepted as normal. And it's definitely not normal part of aging. You know, we know centenarians who are still doing all kinds of, you know, things that 20 year olds can do. So it's not part of aging at all. It's part of um, the chronic disease. You know, there's lots of, evidence showing that there's lots of inflammation that could be causing this. Um, so I think we need to listen. Our bodies are very clever. They, they give us these symptoms as signals that something is not right. Something is out of balance. Um, and then we need to take these symptoms um, seriously and dig down. And I have to say, I, I think a lot of the time, like you said, when the symptoms are not so severe, there's less of a motivation to, to, to um, bring about any change, right? So um, in my experience, people don't just, maybe it's the way society is now. We don't tend to put any value on prevention. So when things are good and you're functioning okay, they just don't people don't feel motivated to make a change. And I think that's a shame because prevention is so much more important than um, reversing. And, you know, sometimes we, sometimes we can, sometimes we can't reverse chronic diseases. So prevention is absolutely key. And I think that's where I love your, what you the work you're doing because you are very you know you're helping us eat help you're inspiring us to eat healthily and that's part of very important prevention work yeah well thank you um we're all in this together right it's joined the movement um you know it, it's making me think about um something that I feel like I've experienced so I talk about this a little bit in the in introductory episode to the podcast that I really wasn't 
someone who was thriving and feeling very well growing up. And it was only when I became aware and made some serious, I would say, dietary changes and lifestyle changes that I started to experience true vitality. Mm -hmm. And once you've experienced true vitality and Mm -hmm. clear-headedness and energy and this energy that doesn't require coffee as I sip my coffee now. Right. (laughs) Um, you know, when you feel that, even if it's for a day or a week or a, yeah. a, a phase before then you kind of maybe dig yourself into a hole again, um, <clears throat> it's almost like if you've never experienced that level of vitality, you don't even know that there's anything wrong with you. Right. So you might yeah. be having dull brain fog and forgetfulness and lethargy, and you might just think that's a normal part of being human. So, right. Exactly. I think there's a lot of people out there who think it's completely normal to feel suboptimal. Right. Um, because Absolutely. they never have experienced true, you know, vibrant vitality. And so yeah. um, it is really so important not to ignore those subtle signs and not yeah. to think of them as normal. Because like you said, there are centenarians who are rocking out at the age of 100. Like, exactly. <laughs> Doing all kinds of amazing. Still doing like surgical operations. I know some. Uh, I think a surgeon in Loma Linda just died. I think aged 110. He's still operating at the age of 90. So, um, I think that the issue is that these symptoms come on so gradually, right? Mm-hmm. And then you, there's no kind of like aha moment until something else happens. Like that's more extreme. I feel. Um, so if it's insidious onset you just kind of go down, down, down by a little bit per day. And then, and then you just kind of learn to adapt until something really throws a span in the works for you. Yeah. So I think the moral, the takeaway for the listeners really is don't ignore the subtle symptoms because then they won't be subtle anymore after a while. So, and it might be too late. Um, Exactly. So you, essentially healed yourself um, once you figured out it was heavy metal toxicity and gluten sensitivity. Did you find that removing those things from your life made a huge difference? A huge. Yeah, absolutely huge. So like you were saying earlier, you don't realize how good you can feel until you feel good. <laughs> and it's kind of like, oh my gosh, am I supposed to not need caffeine in the morning? I can literally get out of bed and not need to drink any caffeine and just keep and just, you know, start my day, do my work. Um, You know, I still drink matcha because of the health benefits, but I don't need to have that caffeine hit anymore. Um, My mood is so much better. I'm not having the um, anxiety symptoms. I'm sleeping so much better. So, yeah. So I think once you know what it feels like, you, you just, don't want to go back there anymore. So for those listening, if they suspect they have a heavy metal toxicity, because maybe they have some of these symptoms that you mentioned, but you can't Mm -hmm. test for it in a blood test, how Mm -hmm. do you go about knowing if that's actually the case? And how did you get rid of it um, from your system? Okay. So the first thing I want to say is the symptoms are quite vague. Um, So just because you have brain fog and low energy doesn't mean you have heavy metal toxicity. It could be a number of other things. Um, So always work with a practitioner. Obviously, I'm here to give guidance and education, um, but not medical advice. You always have to seek a practitioner for that. And heavy metal detox can actually be dangerous um, because Mercury is being hidden from your bloodstream for a reason. Your body is trying to protect you. So the body very quickly, as, as soon as mercury comes into your bloodstream, the body's like, okay, let's get into action. Let's try and hide these toxins um, so that it's not in the bloodstream because then it can be transported to all the organs in the body, right? Um, so... It goes and also put mercury is lipophilic, so it's fat loving. So it goes tends to go to the brain, goes to like I said before, thyroid, soft tissues, um, and so after a while, after chronic exposure, where you need to be looking is actually so. There's several ways, and mercury is actually notoriously difficult to test for because it can hide. Um, but a combination of tests is usually what. Um, practitioners use. So they will look at hair. So um, heavy metals are excreted through hair and you can look at composition of minerals to determine 
um, whether you could have a heavy uh, body load. But studies have also shown that some of us can't excrete heavy metals into hair. And that may be part of the problem is that you have a genetic predisposition to not being able to excrete these metals. And that's why it accumulates and causes problems. So, for example, they've shown that children with autism, on the hair sample, it shows very low mercury level. But we know that mercury could be accumulating in their body and particularly in the brain causing their symptoms. So you cannot just rely on that test alone. Uh, So usually we would combine that with a urine test or a stool test. And um, I think there's a lab that actually combines everything in one go. So I think it's um, Quicksilver is the name, but you'd have to ask your practitioner to order a test for you. Um, So the urine can either be a a non-provoked or provoked. So provoked means that you use a binder to stimulate um, the tissue mercury to come out. It will bind to it and then it will come out in your urine. So that's kind of, um, it could, it's thought of as a more accurate way to reflect tissue burden. Um, and then stool again, um, because mercury is detoxified usually in the liver and then it comes out into, through the bile into your GI tract. That could be another way to measure. Um, the body tissue burden to see how much you're actually detoxifying. So a combination of those ways. Um, And then going on to how I detoxified. And again, I can't emphasize enough, make sure that you are um, working with a practitioner because if you're mobilizing mercury from, let's say, brain into your bloodstream, that could actually just recirculate in your body and deposit somewhere else. Or it could actually cause you acute symptoms because some of it, um, mercury is very toxic to kidneys. So I've actually seen red cases of people going to acute kidney failure from improper mercury de- detox. So if their body burden is super high and they, they mobilize and all of it just hits your kidneys, you could ha- actually have health issues there. But the idea is you want to, first of all, open up your body's detox mechanisms. So your body has natural detox pathways in the liver, kidneys, lymph, sweat, sweat glands, and lungs. So we detox every day through those mechanisms. But our detox mechanisms are usually clogged up with everyday toxicities. Um, So, And also you may have genetic predispositions where you cannot detoxify very well through those mechanisms. So when toxins build up, then those pathways get clogged. And then if you are then mobilizing mercury, you can't get rid of it and the body just recirculates mercury. So you want to be actually opening up those pathways before you even attempt a detox, making sure your liver is working optimally, your kidneys are working optimally, you're sweating every day, you know, um, And studies have actually shown that mercury comes out in your sweat. I know a lot of people in the conventional world don't believe in sweating and sauna, but actually studies back that up. So we actually sweat out a lot of toxins, including BPA, phthalates, and heavy metals through our sweat. So so that's the first step. And then you want to kind of start to encourage mercury to come out of your tissues. So you can use binders. Um, some binder examples are chlorella, um, pectins, even charcoal, although I'm not a fan of regular charcoal use because it can bind to nutrients. Um, and, and some, I think, bentonite clay and some some other kind of um, minerals, uh, fulvic, humic acid. So every practitioner will have their preference of what they want to use, but just make sure they're high-quality products. Um, so once you bind, you want to make sure that it comes out of your body. So then, um, you know, you want to be, again, maximizing your detox, like sweating it out, drinking lots of water. Um, and cilantro can actually bind to heavy metals very well. So um, particularly in the brain. So I used cilantro um, 
to help mobilize some of the mercury from my brain. But make sure if you're using cilantro that you can get rid of the heavy metals. Otherwise, it's just going to recirculate. Wow. Basically, you need to work with Dr. Vivian at platefulhealth.org if you suspect you have a heavy metal <laughs> toxicity because it is a complicated thing and it's not something to be taken lightly. And like you said, there are dangers in the detoxification process if it's not done properly, where mm-hmm. it would just recirculate. So what a thoughtful kind of um, protocol Wow, you put yourself through. And I imagine you have worked with clients um, to help them along yeah. the same lines. Yeah. And it's really hard to get this protocol in conventional medicine. Um, yeah, uh, you definitely need to be working with like a naturopath or functional medical doctor who will then be able to guide you through that. Um, there are many online detoxes and I just wouldn't go anywhere near those because they don't know your special, your situation, your body, your health. And it really very much needs to be individualized. And one thing I did forget is the microbiome. How can I forget that? That's like what right. I'm all about. Our microbiome is such an important way of uh, uh, detoxification for us because bacteria in our gut can actually help break down some of these toxins. So it's really essential to make sure that we are uh, you know, pooping regularly and that we have a healthy balance of bacteria that are then will help us detoxify. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, in all honesty, for a long time, I thought, you know what, we're surrounded by stuff, we're surrounded by toxins, being paranoid about them is just going to be like, I was almost like, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, I'm so informed in so many other ways, but I'm like, gosh, I don't want to think about all the toxins in my body. But, you know, the things that we can control mm. should control as a service to ourselves and our bodies. Um, yeah. We really do live in unprecedented times. I'm realizing that even though ignorance is bliss, it's no longer bliss when it catches up with you. And so I think yes. for me, the shift has been, and you've been a big, um, you've been instrumental in helping me to oh, shift my apathy. <laughs> Um, you know, there are things we can control. There are things we can't. And the things we can control, we should as a service to ourselves. I'll j- I just say that again. It's kind of the conversation I have with myself. And so supporting my microbiome, incorporating practices that, in- that, that are healthy, that make me sweat and detoxify in a natural way, drinking lots of water, embracing natural substances like cilantro. I love that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, yeah, I think that's just such a wonderful reminder that, yes, we don't want to live in chronic fear but we also don't want to live in apathy because then it is going to catch up with us. Mm, exactly. And that's so well said because my goal is not to um, fear monger. So it's not kind of like, okay, you're just surrounded and you're doomed. We're not doomed. Um, unfortunately, the world is a lot more polluted than you know 200 years ago, but there are things that we can do to change our path and take back our health. Um, you know, I, I'm sure you're aware of that EWG study that showed that the cord blood from, I think, 14 babies um, contained 243 chemicals. Um, so our bodies, you know, our babies are born laden with toxins. But, you know, if you're pregnant and you're minimizing the exo- exposure, you're doing a lot of good. Um, so th- it's absolutely worthwhile bringing awareness to this topic even though it's very dreary and depressing and you know if I'm honest when I first came into this realization my immediate reaction was just like oh my gosh (laughs) this is so overwhelming but slowly you know we're not aiming for perfection where any change that you can make would be positive so whether it's you know purifying the air whether in your house or with a air purifier or filtering your water, whatever you feel inclined to make a change in first, make that first step, little baby steps. And then, you know, for example, getting rid of plastic containers um, because those can leach BPA and chemicals into your food, switching to glass. So whatever you can afford or have time to do, just do that one thing and then feel good about the fact that you have already eliminated toxins from your life. 
Yeah, I love that you always say progress, not perfection. I think that's such a good reminder. Um, but we should not stop trying to make some progress where we can. So mm. I love that. Um, so you also cut out gluten. Uh, we had a conversation with another guest on my podcast last uh, oh, yeah. the last episode. We talked about gluten. What mm. are your thoughts on gluten? Should everybody be experimenting with no gluten for a while? It surely sounds like that these days, just given everyone's yeah, experience off gluten. It's really, yeah, it's really um, quite a contentious topic, I think. Um, there is a professor, Professor uh, Alessio, uh, from Harvard, who I think he's a professor of pediatrics at Harvard. He said that every single human being is incapable of digesting gluten. But um, you do have people who can eat gluten and have no symptoms. Now, whether there's inflammation in their body, we don't know that. I think there needs to be some studies into that. But I think if you have a genetic predisposition to things like autoimmune disease, I think there's a lot of evidence showing that anything that can um, cause issues in your digestive tract and cause a leaky gut, which is one of the, um, what's the word, not a cause, but a factor that can contribute to the development of autoimmunity, you may do better without gluten. Um, And you can do... I think the important thing is just to listen to your body. If, you, if you're eating gluten every day, you're probably not going to notice a huge difference in your symptoms. So if you want to know if your body reacts to gluten, the best way is probably just to eliminate it for three weeks. See how your body's feeling after three weeks because that's that kind of like the clean slate and then reintroduce it and then see what happens you know, do you have brain fog the next day or within three days? Because food sensitivities can take three to five days to manifest um, the delayed food sensitivities anyway. So, which is usually gluten falls into that group. So um, reintroducing and just waiting three to five days to see whether you have a change in your energy level, um, how your brain is functioning, how your mood is. Because after I cut out, I, I was actually in denial about my gluten tolerance. I, I love gluten. <laughs> I love to eat it. I just didn't want to believe it. So I actually tested it on myself like three times. And after three weeks of elimination, when you first eat it, the change is phenomenal. Like for me anyway, um, I felt anxiety. Um, I, my sleep was disturbed and then I had migraine. It was so obvious. Um, and then I backed it up with a even then I was in denial. So I actually had a food sensitivities test and that confirmed off the chart that I was sensitive to gluten. So, you know, I, I've just cut it out of my life, but it can cause inconvenience um, because gluten is everywhere. And also I just want to say that gluten-free alternatives sometimes is not the answer because, you know, some of those products are highly refined um, so I think if you're, if you're wondering if you may be sensitive to gluten, then I think listening to your body and doing elimination might be a good idea. Yes. And me personally, um, I have found, I don't have any overt symptoms when I do eat gluten, but when I take it away, I just feel so much better. That's the only mm. way to describe it. Mm. I just feel lighter, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and just better. So I, eat it rarely. Um, when I eat it, I know that I'm not going to feel so great the next day. So I, I make sure it's worth it, like a really good piece of baguette or something. Right. <laughs> I exactly. Won't it on something. That's yeah. not that exciting. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, one thing that comes up a lot in conversations with moms and also was a big part of the inspiration for Mom Light is that many moms feel very frustrated by the added weight that comes, uh, maybe post-pregnancy. They just can't shake, seem to shake it off. They're also getting older. They're more tired. They have less time for themselves. So do you see this as a challenge with moms in your practice? And yeah. if so, um, what do you tell those moms? What is your approach, kind of, if you had to summarize to helping moms deal with excess body weight? Mm. Very good question. And indeed, it's very, very common. And weight, um, weight loss resistance is one of the commonest things that I deal with, actually. Um, and I think the first thing I want to say is 
don't beat yourself up for it because there's something happening in your body. Again, weight loss resistance is a symptom. Okay, it's a symptom of some kind of imbalance in your body. It is not because you have poor willpower. It's not because, you know, sometimes it's because of eating, you know, too much caloric excess of of the wrong kind of foods, like refined processed foods. But your body is still driving you to eat those foods. So the body is sending, you know, it all comes down, I think, to what's going on in your brain, what's going on in your hormones, because the brain is sending these signals for you to want to eat. They're sending the hunger signals. Um, So I think we need to really focus on imbalances rather than just, oh, I'm going to go on a crash diet. And of course, anyone can lose weight very easily if you just fat, you know, don't eat or... (laughs) Go, go take some um, arsenic or, you know, I'm not saying anyone should do that, but, you know, chemotherapy will make you lose weight. But your body will allow that to a certain extent and then it's going to kick in and say, no, you need to regain that weight because there is inside of the brain, I believe, a weight um, thermostat. So that weight thermostat is set by a variety of things like your hormones, like ghrelin, lectin, um, leptin, um, cortisol, insulin. So many things play into that. Um, so whether you're sleeping, whether you're um, following your circadian rhythm, though all those things will ultimately come together to determine your thermostat. And studies have shown that people who have had that thermostat raised, so they've gained a lot of weight in the past, even when they've lost weight, they need less calories to maintain that weight loss. So for example, someone who weighed 150 pounds, um, if they lose weight and they only weigh 110, they need less calories to maintain that weight than someone who originally was already weighing 110 pounds. So that thermostat seems to be kind of pushed up and then just comes down very slowly or very, it's very difficult to push that thermostat down. So you then weight loss maintenance, I think is where the, the, where we need to focus on because that's where it's really difficult for people to maintain whatever they've lost, right? That's why yo-yo diets, uh, all these, um, diet trends are so popular because People see immediate results, and then after a few months, they probably, you know, the tendency is that they gain it back. And it's because I feel that we're not focusing on the underlying, like what is underneath all of that. What's the body trying to help tell you? Um, a lot of moms I deal with super stressed. You know, there's a lot of, and it's just not not just like kind of stress from sleep deprivation. It's a lot of mum guilt. They may have, you know, women, we're so lucky we have like the right to education and careers, but they may have given, you know, not uh, given up, but what's the word? Like, they may have chosen to care for their kids rather than focusing on their career. They may be feeling like that emotional uh, drive can actually st- uh, stress out your body as well. So the emotional stress from a lot of uh, emotional things that um, moms go through. So, and on top of that, we live in a super fast society where everything has to be done now and everything is so urgent. And we don't have time to ourselves because we're juggling so many things. So that pushes up the cortisol in our bodies. And, you know, if then that may affect your sleep. So a lot of the time, I think we need to, you know, one of the things that I always get women to do is to meditate. I know it's really hard. If you're really busy with kids, it's just so hard to find time, right? But even just five minutes, whatever you can manage, we've got to lower that cortisol because that can actually impact a lot of the postpartum hormones, um, and then I know you talk a lot about intermittent fasting and, you know, that's, that's so important because our circadian rhythm is really important in reg, re, weight regulation as well, because different bacteria in our gut becomes active at different times of day and it can affect how much nutrient or calories you're actually absorbing. 
So I think really digging down to like, like really looking at your life and seeing what you could improve on to reduce that cortisol is a really big lever in my opinion. Um, and just dialing in the lifestyle changes that really aid um, cortisol balance. So we don't want to push out the hypothalamo-pituitary axis, the HPA axis. We want to balance it. So, um, you know, making sure that we talk about the morning routine. So morning routine can really help you that because it just sets the tone for the day. And I've done this on my Instagram. Um, I showed my fasting blood sugar when I was stressed out shouting at my kids first thing in the morning or when I'm calm and I've done a meditation and it, you know, it's a world of difference. It was um, 75 when I just meditated and it was like over 90. So because stress cortisol actually can push out sugar into your bloodstream. That's what you're supposed to do is a stress hormone. So the body senses that you need to fight and in order to fight, you need glucose. So it's going to push out glucose and then it's going to throw off your insulin. Um, so starting your day in the right way and also listening to your body and find out what foods really um, maybe triggers for you. For So some people, and that comes down to several things like food sensitivities or how you process food. So I've had um, clients who really respond poorly to healthy foods like pineapple. You know, if pineapple really spike their sugar high and then they get that crash because there's so much insulin being released. So listening to your body and then seeing what, you know, don't listen to these gurus who tell you there's a dog, you know, this is the way to eat and this is the only way to lose weight because everybody's different. So, um, you know, there are certain rules that apply to all of these diets, which is that we need to eat lots of plants um, and, you know, we need lots of fiber. But other than that, you need to listen to your body and how much fat you need, how much protein you need. Um, and then sleep is such a, an important. And I, I think that, you know, I'm maybe asking the impossible from new moms, right, <laughs> to sleep because it's really hard to juggle that. And I, I went through that myself. My kids are much older now, 10 and eight, but back then it was really difficult, but give your permission, give yourself permission to nap. No, we don't need to do the laundry straight away. Like these things, some of these things can just wait, ask yourself, what is, what's your why for want, wanting to do what you, your goal for where you want to be with your health, you know? So if it's because you want to lose weight so you feel more vibrant or you want to lose weight because you want to look better, whatever reason drives you, look at that reason and say, what's the big picture here? Um, can these, like, do these things really matter? Do I need to do, be doing these things right now or can it wait? What's more important? Making those lifestyle factors a priority. So making sleep a priority. Don't go on your phone. I know I'm guilty of that as well um, because, you know, when everybody's in bed and the house is quiet, it's so nice to, like, then, you know, go on Instagram and or whatever you do uh, on your phone. But you know, dialing in, prioritizing sleep, for example. So nine o'clock, making sure that your phone is outside of your room and you're meditating. So if you have a clear goal, then those things don't seem like a sacrifice, right? Otherwise it's like, oh no, I'm missing out on my friends or whatever they're doing on Instagram. But if you have a clear goal, then it's like, well, no, I need to get sleep. I need to make sure that I lower your, my cortisol level with meditation. I need to go for a walk for 30 minutes because that's good for my health and it's going to help me with my goal. I think that's, that's where I would probably start. Yeah, there is so much wisdom in everything you just said and I love that you handle the body as this whole beautiful ecosystem where there are hormones at play and weight set points at play and sleep has a role. And, you know, it's not just about calories in and calories out and exercise. And I think that's why what you do is so special. And um, that's you. just such incredible advice. 
Um, oh, sorry. One thing I forgot to mention is toxicity. So there's a lot of evidence showing that toxins in our body will make us put on weight because it's holding on to fat, which a lot of toxins, because they're lipophilic, they induce our body to then put on fat to protect us again. So toxicity is another area I'll probably look into. Right. So it really is so complicated and so amazing to have people like you who can sort of sift through it all. Um, so I really would encourage people to check out platefulhealth.org and to reach out for you, reach out to you, Thank you. Uh, for more advice because it is just such an important way to look at the problem mm-hmm. and the attention, the why, why do you want to lose weight? Why do you want to feel healthy? Um, so important to connect with that why. Um, mm. We could literally talk for hours, but I do not want to let you go without sharing your epic morning routine. You talked about the importance <laughs> of the morning routine. I'm, I've always known the morning routine is pivotal, but the fact that it impacts blood sugar in that way and you tested it, that kind of blew my mind, I have to say. <laughs> so what is your morning routine? And I know you have two kids. They might be older, but that still sounds like a lot to juggle. How do you make it happen in mom life? Yeah, I know everyone says the same thing. I just wake up earlier. It is true. I just, I wake up earlier, but I really prioritize sleep. So I will make sure that if I can, most of the time, I'm in bed by 10 p.m. and I'm asleep by 10.30 so that I can wake up at six. So half an hour before my kids wake up, I have that time to myself. And that's so important because it helps me think about what I want to achieve during the day, what my goals are for that one day. And I don't have huge goals. I might maybe have three things on my to-do list and that's it. And um, I feel that that's kind of key to reducing that overwhelm of, oh my gosh, I I can't even get through this. So let me just model through the day somehow. So if you have, uh, I have three goals for myself every morning. Um, But as soon as I wake up, I move my body because your body has been inactive for hopefully eight hours. um, And it's stagnant, you know, the lymph is stagnant and you've, your liver has worked to detoxify and you want to move that lymph so that toxins can come out. And hopefully you also have a bowel movement where, you know, that will aid detoxification. So um, I would do like a quick five-minute yoga flow or I might do, I like that um, seven-minute New York Times workout and we can link that. It's just uh, if I have time, that seven minutes quite long. <laughs> but, you know, I do yoga flow for maybe three to five minutes. And then um, I do oil pulling because I have um, root canals and then, you know, I, I know that my mouth is a source of toxicity for me. So I do oil pulling um, and then I will dry brush, dry brush my body. And that's very quick, you know, you can do it in two minutes. I know it sounds like a lot, but honestly, I get this all done in about 15 minutes and then I meditate. Um, if I have extra time, then I might do like a quick not a quick, but 15 minutes of sauna. So that will help me then sweat out all of that, whatever I've mobilized. Um, and then, yeah, and then I go into my day. So I will journal at the end of my meditation and then I go make breakfast for my kids. So all of that takes anywhere between 20 to 30 minutes so that I'm ready mentally and physically for them because I know that if I don't look after that, I'm not in a good place for them. I'm, I get angry at them. Um, so I probably, I'm not perfect by any means. And, you know, some days I am just in a rush and I have to skip all of that or just do bits and pieces. Or, and I don't meditate every day, but I do what I can. Oh, I forgot the lemon water. Sorry. <laughs> the warm water with lemons. Yes. Love. Yeah. I do that too. And I swear by it. Well, it is a very inspiring morning routine. I am definitely going to start moving first thing when I wake up. I move, but not right when I wake up, but it makes so much sense after that stagnance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I love that. And, you and just you're oxygenating your tissues. Yeah. yeah. It just makes you... Five sun salutations or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then try and get out into the sun, the light, as soon as you wake up as well, because that sets your circadian rhythm um even just for like 30 seconds that switches off the melatonin production actually gives you more energy 
Um, so, you know, if you're reliant on coffee, try that. Try just looking at, you know, not looking directly at the sun, but being exposed to natural light first thing in the morning. You may find that you don't need that coffee so much anymore. Love it. Guys, I thought I had an epic morning routine, but I have new goals. <laughs> and I love them. Thank you for sharing that. I want to close with one question, which is what's one practice that has surprised you in terms of how impactful it's been for your health? Meditation, hands down. No question. Um, it is something that's really difficult for a lot of people to do and uh, almost always I speak to my clients and they're like, no, I cannot do it. I just don't have time or I just can't calm my mind down. So it's harder than torture, but it is by far the biggest lever I found in health because we, we are so, under so much stress and stress is a, another toxin, but it's invisible. So nobody's talking about it. Nobody's recognizing it, but we need to acknowledge that and actually help our bodies deal with stress better and meditation for me is is a big winner i agree game changer indeed our bodies and minds are so interconnected we think of them as separate but they're really not and i think meditation is just such a powerful practice um yeah, yeah. and I, I did a post actually on instagram um meditate for for to lose your belly fat because ah, yeah yeah and we see like, you know women going post Partum going to CrossFit when their hormones haven't really quite rebalanced and they're driving up their cortisol because you're, you know, you're putting your body under so much stress through um, hard exercise, right? And your body doesn't know that it's just exercise. You're doing it voluntarily. Your body thinks that you're under attack from yeah, animal Saber-tooth right. Exactly. <laughs> and so that cortisol is just spiking like there's no tomorrow. And what does cortisol do? Cortisol makes you store belly fat because it's like kind of like survival mechanism. So I do see a lot of women at CrossFit with belly, you know, big bellies and, you know, they're muscular, but they have big bellies. And I just feel like they may have overstressed their bodies and it's all about balance. I love that, Viv. Um, somehow we think that's the way out of the heaviness, but sometimes the way is to slow down, to meditate mm. and maybe do a little flow and postpone that CrossFit session because yeah. we are very, very intricate beings with a lot of harmonious kind of crosstalk between things and hormones are so important. And thank you for shedding light on that. Guys, so many great takeaways today. Um, we could go on and on. Yes, we really can. Thank you so much for being here Thank and for you. sharing your story, for sharing your wisdom. You can learn more about Dr. Vivian at platefulhealth.com. Is that right? Yes, www.platefulhealth.com. I will put that in the show notes and you can check her out on Instagram. She's always sharing very thoughtful posts and really using the platform to elevate and uplift and teach us. It's plateful.health. And uh, really look forward forward to having you back on the show. And thank yeah, you guys so much too. for listening. And like I said, please leave a review, a rating on iTunes. It will help the show become more visible, help more mothers, help more people find lightness in body, mind, and being. Until next time, take care, guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening, everyone.